Hey, welcome to the season finale of the Talking to Ourselves podcast. Before we jump in, I just want to quickly say a few thank yous. First and foremost, huge thank you to my friends Joel Simon and Jeff Fiorello at JSM Music. You've been incredible production partners to me since the very early going when we were figuring out what we wanted this thing to be. I'm so grateful for your generosity of time and spirit. This podcast would not exist without you, and it belongs as much to you as it does to me. Thank you to Kevin Swanepoel and The One Club for supporting this show in general, uh, and specifically for bringing it some credibility when we first began booking guests without having any track record to prove their experience wouldn't be a complete debacle. Thank you to Kareen Gilbertson, who helps produce this podcast, books interviews, provides background materials on guests, and tactfully gives me a kick in the ass when I need one. And finally, thank you to the listeners. When I first decided to do this, I accepted the possibility that this might all be an elaborate gimmick for me to corner some of the best in the business and pepper them with questions that no one but me and like my dad listening in Tucson would ever actually hear the answers to. And I was at peace with that. Because honestly, my original motive for doing this podcast was selfish. I was feeling stagnant. I was feeling like what got me my job as a first-time CCO wasn't enough to perform the job at the level that I wanted. I was in search of some new inputs and some new answers. And if the only good that came of it was that I was building my own postgraduate curriculum of sorts, that was fine by me. But then something unexpected happened. One after another, I started getting all these deeply heartfelt, moving emails and LinkedIn messages from creatives around the world. They were feeling what I was feeling and sort of needing what I was needing. And whether you want to call it guidance or inspiration or mentorship, because, you know, you could dedicate your entire life to this business, but it's unlikely you'll ever get direct mentorship from one of the greats like Alex Bogusky or Susan Hoffman or David Lubars. And so, you know, over this past year and 21 episodes, this has become a place for you to seek mentorship and inspiration right alongside me, to learn that there's no one right way to do it, to figure out your own rubric of talent, persistence, perseverance, and luck, and to affirm what you've always known to be true, that there's great strength in vulnerability. So with that, I thank you for listening. I invite you to enjoy this final episode of season one, and look out for season two coming in 2019, where we'll expand our repertoire to hear from CMOs and more CCOs and others who make this, in my biased opinion, the best business to work in. All right, on to the show. Yo, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum. Today, my guest, David Droga, founder and creative chairman of Droga5, one of the most influential and awarded agencies of the past decade. David's career path has become folklore. At 18, he got his first advertising job in the mailroom of Gray and Sydney. By 22, he was partner in ECD at Oman, winning Australian Agency of the Year twice. In 1996, David moved to Asia to become ECD of Saatchi & Saatchi Singapore. By 1998, AdAge was naming Saatchi Singapore International Agency of the Year. At 29, David was promoted to ECD of Saatchi London, quickly earning Agency of the Year honors from Cannes, AdAge, and AdWeek. In 2003, David moved to New York City to become the first ever worldwide chief creative officer of the Publicist Network. In 2006, David decided to start his own agency, launching Droga5. Just over a decade later, on behalf of clients including Under Armour, Chase Bank, The New York Times, CoverGirl, Prudential, and Hennessy, Droga5 has been named Agency of the Year multiple times by every major publication on the planet. 
To date, David is the most awarded creative of all time at Cannes, with over 70 Lions and six Grand Prix. He is the youngest person ever inducted into the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. He's been featured in Esquire and Fast Company. In 2017, Adweek named him one of the top 100 most influential leaders for the third year in a row. That same year, he received the Cannes Lifetime Achievement Award, the Lion of St. Mark. He is perhaps the most mythic figure working in our industry today. This is David Droga and I talking to ourselves. Well, I'd like to start our relationship by vowing to you that I will not ask you for the millionth time how you landed on the name Droga no, 5, no, okay? We're not doing it. That's a, Thank you. We're off to a great start. But I will ask you a question that surely you've been asked a few times just for the sake of consistency with, with the show, which is uh, where are you from and what do your parents do? I am from a tiny, tiny remote part of Australia called oh, – I was born in a, in a ski resort in a, in a national park called Kosciuszko National Park called Threadbow. And my father ran the ski resort and my mother was a stay-at-home mum, artist, activist, educator. Yeah. Yeah. You were the uh, fifth youngest of six kids. Uh, hot sibling rivalry or was it pretty harmonious? It is since that day and even today, like it is insanely competitive, very, very, very close um, siblings. So there's yeah, five boys, then I have a younger sister and I also have a half sister who's 30, who's fantastic too. But yeah, there's, it's insanely competitive. Yeah. Having siblings is a great gift, but I think having siblings creates an illusion that your siblings are your competition in life just because of the proximity of, of how they grow, how close they grow up next to you. Did that ever start to uh, erode or dissipate over time as you guys went your separate ways? You'd think it would. The weird thing about it is it was compounded by the fact that because we were in such a remote place, they weren't just, you know, siblings. They were essentially friends, neighbors, whatever you want to call it, because there was only... In summertime, there was only two families who lived in these mountains. So the nearest store was an hour's drive down the mountain. The nearest high school was two hours' drive. So we had to create our own universe, our own world, our own Olympics, our own politics, our own try, all this kind of stuff. Right. And we, we're very different, but we're very similar, and that's probably from proximity and just re how we were reared. But, yeah, we're all in each other's shit all the time. And if you walked into any one of our houses now, they almost, not by design, kind of feel the same. Like we're all into certain artists and types of furniture and it's a weird thing. Like we're just taking all these cues from stuff. And uh, so we try and outdo each other in every single way. Beneath all that, I mean, what's amazing is... I know that no matter what happens in any context, my siblings would have my back and vice versa. Yeah. And, you know, we push each other, but we're very supportive of each other. We're in each other's business way too much. Um, we have a similar sense of humor. Our, you know, our wives are good friends. And, but it's, it's a consistency that I love. And, you know, if I, if I could pass anything on to my kids would be that thing about, you know, that you need, you need um, islands in your life that you can always use as sort of, markers to where you are yeah and you know my siblings are my my islands if i'm sort of out in the yeah. sea if that makes a bad analogy but you know what i mean my son's three and my daughter's two and we have a son on the way and someone pointed out something to us that once you hear it once you hear something you can sort of never forget it they said yeah. you know your kids are 
sort of it's obvious, but you never think about it this way. Your kids are more related than you and your wife are, and your kids will know each other longer than you and your wife will. You know, if all goes as planned. And that's a very that was a very sort of strange and profound insight. Completely. My my one of my kids said to me the other day that you know you and mum aren't related. And I was like, well, obviously that's true. Right. But it's it's weird. I mean, you know, and I got four kids, and they run. The game, you know, my youngest is in kindergarten and my eldest is a senior, so 18 and 5 and then 2 in the middle. So we've sort of got all those different chapters going on at the same time. And I'm trying to, and you can't force it, but I definitely love seeing them as like a, a, a litter of puppies where they, whether they're fighting, playing, they're always sort of in each other's orbits. Yeah. Kind of amazing. That's sort of the ultimate for me. What did 12-year-old David Drogo want to be when he grew up? Uh, not at school. That was probably the starting yeah. ambition. I think that I just from the get-go was always, you know, I used to sort of be amongst my friends, I was always sort of teased as being on oh, Mr. Imagination. I was always the one who would basically start any conversation with imagine if or we should, you know, plotting something. I was always um, thinking about what could be or and it, d- it didn't have to be smart or insightful. Sometimes it was just I was always daydreaming. So I knew that I wanted to do something that allowed me to use my imagination. That's all I knew. I didn't have any wisdom thinking, okay, I want to, you know, as you get older, you start to channel that into things. I was thinking, okay, do I want to be a journalist? Do I want to write movies? Do I want to write comic books? I didn't really know. I just knew that it had to be something like that. Yeah. Do you remember a moment or an age when advertising caught your interest? I think it was um, 16 or 17 when I was at school. You know, when you all you start to start to think about what you want to do. You're like, okay, I need to act more grown up and channel my energy towards, uh, you know, the potential of something or the aspiration for something. And, and I, uh, I can't remember where I saw it. It might have been an article or a book or some, somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but there was someone said, oh, there's this thing called advertising where you make things that you write and create and it's other people's money. I was like, that sounds amazing. It sounds fine. I mean, it sounds fine. And, and actually my initial thought or interpretation of that, which is even more ridiculous, I thought you would be sitting in a room and someone would come in run, running in and be like, we need an idea for X. And they would sort of stand awkwardly by the couch or, you know, for five minutes or ten minutes and you would just brainstorm stuff and go, why don't you try this? And then they would go off and do it. That's what I thought advertising was. It's yeah. become more like that. Well, actually, that's right. Who knew? Who knew? Maybe that, maybe, uh, maybe it's sort of becoming um, a reality now. But it was, I don't know, just the excitement of that. And I, maybe I didn't have the talent or the patience to, um, you know, sit down and write the great Australian novel or whatever it was. You know, I've always thought that the idea of writing a screenplay or a book was romantic and interesting. That's what anyone who writes, that's their sort of penultimate expression of it, I think. But I, I honestly also knew myself thinking, you know, I have such a short attention span. I have to find something that marries the two. Did it come as any surprise to your folks that you skipped college? They were horrified, absolutely horrified. You know, they'll deny that now, but they were completely horrified because, again, a very high-achieving family where, you know, they all went to college, scholarships, you know, law scholarships, Cambridge, all this sort of stuff. So by the time it got to, you know, fifth cab on the rank and I was like, actually, you know, I'm, I actually had, think I had to lines and apply for um, an English literature course knowing that I wasn't going to go just so I could sort of put a, 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 a finger on that. And 
tell them that I was going to defer it or something like that. I was sort of trying to an on-ramp into the <laughs> freedom uh, dash. And so they were kind of horrified, and I think they were mostly horrified when that settled in with them. And then I said to them, actually, I'm going to try this thing called advertising. And again, you know, classic, you know, hardworking Jewish father who's very much about, you know, success and working your way through things, and a mother who doesn't measure success by anything monetary is very much about impact and service and you know artistic things i had to try and convince her that it was advertising was much more artistic and creative than she realized so they were they were sort of you let them both down oh i sh- that was the whole thing i yeah I, not business enough not artistic enough well, I, still at the joke, time. I still joke to this day you know to most of my family you know i'm a massive compromise because i'm neither business or creative in either ways because you know my three oldest brothers are um, in finance. One is a merchant banker, two of them run hedge funds, and then another brother is a fa- fabulous sculptor who's just won a major public grant in Miami, actually, which is phenomenal. And then I have a sister who um, runs a, 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 a thing that raises money for single mothers in India. She takes people on treks and all the money goes to it. You know, very worthy and very important. And it's kind of this weird thing where they, a little bit in the beginning, they were like, what are you doing? You, you know, pick a horse. Are you either going to be a capitalist pig or are you going to be, a, you know, a, someone who really does, does, does good or is that, you know, and I was like, actually, I'm, I think that I can do it all from this, this vantage point, yeah. which hopefully I've improved a little bit of that, definitely. You uh, famously started your career in the mailroom at Gray, Sydney at the yeah. age of 18. Yeah. Is there a enduring lesson uh, you took from that mailroom experience that stays with you today? A hundred percent. I mean, no, you work your ass off and, you you know, if you start as a shit kicker, you'll always appreciate everywhere you go after that. hundred percent. You have no entitlement, no assumption. It also makes you very aware of everyone's role and the place they have in an ecosystem of any business or an agency. And I was very snoopy and, you know, you know, you got to see, see what was going on in the agency when you put mail on people's desks. It's the main van. Yeah, and you stay in a room longer than you should and hear things you, that right. you probably shouldn't or that excite you. So I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, you know, I was desperate to, to pilot that into something else. But, you know, at the same time, I was doing an Australian writers and art directors um, course. And so at night times I was working. But, uh, you know, that was an amazing experience. And there were some, you know, really, really nice people. And it was fun. And I was 18 and I couldn't believe, you know, I don't know if it's, it's obviously not a thing in the US, but in Australia, you kind of leave home no matter what at 18. You know, there's no such thing as like, oh, I'll just stay with my parents till I get on my feet or 22 or till I get married. That just doesn't exist, right? You just are, you fend for yourself. I mean, obviously, if I want, if I had to, they would. So, you know, I slept on my brother's couch for six months, one of my brothers, and then I moved into some cockroach-infested place in another with another brother when he, you know, and paying paying minimal rent and stealing his clothes, so because you know, and shoes and stuff like that because I didn't have the proper stuff for a job and. And I still, but it was such, it was so exciting, you know, and I remember, I still remember the number because it was so much, you know, I was earning 170 bucks a week in the mailroom. I thought that was incredible. And I would still have to make, this is not a pity thing. This is just an excitement thing. You know, I'd be like, all right, do I, do I get a roast chicken, a quarter roast chicken and gravy potato peas for dinner? Or do I get a pack of ciggies and uh, contribute to my Friday night out with my friends? I mean, literally having to make those choices. I try and... I don't talk the Siggy's thing to my kids, but, you know, explaining to your kids about choices and earning stuff 
So again, it was one of those things where it was, ex- I loved it. It was so exciting. So every move that you made up the food chain and the life chain was appreciated and uh, monumental. Yeah. I've always, I've always told people, um, as dumb as it sounds, one of the most satisfying turning points of my career was when I could go to Chipotle and not have to think about how much the side of guacamole cost. I'm just going to get it. That's, I may not even finish it. Exactly. I don't even like guacamole. <laughs> I'm just going to get it. No, but it's true. Like, it is that kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's so weird now, right? Because it's a generalization, but there's a, you know, our kids, you know, they, they live in this thing where almost things like Seamless or Uber or Lyft, they're abstract to them. It doesn't even equate to money because it's going to their, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas we had to do stuff and you know it's a crazy but but you know i don't wish that we would return to and i don't want my kids to have to go through everything i i went through whatever not that i went through any hardships and there's no soppy stories here but i want them to understand context of things you know my big thing was i had to see past the geography of where i grew up i had to believe that i could get beyond there or my aspirations could go further than the local town or the local city you know my kids are born in, you know, and raised in the most dynamic city in the world, they have to, I have to have them see past their own entitlement or their own opportunity. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of very... I do. Now having young kids, I'm just barely starting to wrap my head around reconciling this contradiction of how do you raise children who want for nothing uh, and, and who enjoy, you know, everything their heart desires without completely destroying their ability to function as humans in the world? Look, that's, that's the, that's the number one thing that I think every parent of any means wrestles with is you do want to spoil your children you just don't want to ruin them and you've got to give them enough where they um, appreciate things but not so much where they don't appreciate anything and it's how do you make them have a desire for things and um, be self-motivated like that's the whole thing if they're self-motivated and and empathetic for others then the rest might take care of itself yeah Um, you were also famously an ECD by the age of 22 yeah my brain does not compute this information. Yeah. Um, can you just briefly describe the circumstances that made a 22-year-old ECD highly advisable at the time? Well, it wasn't by choice, so it wasn't a goal of mine. And again, it's one of those things that it sounds fantastic on a CV and it, you know, in context to an ECD here. But I, a lot of things happen by just circumstance, and you know, I always had my head down. I've, I've always been a hard worker, and I've always believed in myself creatively. So when I I'll condense this story so it's not boring. But after I uh, did the award school and I was at the mailroom of Gray, I was fortunate that I, I won top student of the year. So I got offered a job in, in all these different agencies as a copywriter. And I went to FCB as a junior copywriter. I remember it. I was earning 30 grand a year, which I thought was beyond belief. You know, I can actually get the half chicken. Yeah. And um, stable job, really nice people. But it was a sort of very... Uh, I could just tell it was a very corporate environment and, you know, the work that they were doing didn't feel right to me. That's not judgment. That's just you just feel. And a new agency started in Australia called Oman. Uh, and actually, ironically, two of the people that used to be um, running Grey, the two creative guys, were the leads of that. And they were very well-known young guns in the Australian advertising industry. And they ended, they ended up offering me a job as the first employee at the agency as a, as a junior copywriter. And I basically had to, they had no clients. 
They had really no furniture. It was all, you know, on hype and fumes and all that sort of stuff. But I just knew, having seen them at Grey and their reputation, that they did work that I thought had done work previously in their lives that I was like, that's exciting, that's interesting. They actually are trying to do something. So I, I quit my job at FCB, took the job at this startup agency for 20 grand. So I already cut, sliced my salary by a third in the first six months of my uh, career and was really writing most things when I was there. So I sort of just, it was very fortunate. I was prolific and they'd hit the ground running, like the whole agency hit the ground running. And within a few years, the agency was like the top agency in Australia. It was sort of winning agency of the year and we were getting all the great clients and it sort of boomed from four people to a hundred and so people. And as it grew, I kind of grew it with a responsibility. I didn't even understand the, really the idea of titles. I wasn't a spy. You know, it wasn't like this ladder where you have now where it's like I'm going to become a, a co- you know, junior copywriter, then a copywriter, then a senior creative, and then, a, you know, and then an associate creative. You know, there wasn't 50 rungs of the ladder. It was just you were a creative or you were right. uh, ECD or a creative director and then an ECD. And as the agency booms, you know, I sort of became responsible for more and more of the work that was coming out. And then the founder... One of the original guys, who was a big celebrity in Australia as well, and he was as well known for his good looks and bachelor ways driving flash cars and as he was in advertising, he quit to go and write motivational books and stuff like that. Strange thing to do, but, you know, super smart guy. Um, and just by default, I was sort of next cab on the rank where the other two partners said to me, you know, we'll give you 25% of the company and make you you know, join ECD uh, if, you, if you stay. And I, was, I wasn't even thinking of going. I was like, yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you fools. You, but and it was one of those things. And yeah. at, at the time, again, I wasn't thinking, oh, what that puts in my back pocket or what that looks like in a CV. I, was, my, I do remember this at the time thinking, brilliant. Now I'm 100% responsible for the creative output doesn't mean I have to write everything, but now, you know, the judgment is going to reside with me. And I was very happy about that because I like the idea of um, influencing the work. Did you benefit from sort of being too young and dumb to even know what to be scared of? Or, I mean, or did you have a real sense of kind of adult responsibility at that young age? No, I've never been, you know, I've never been so ridiculously responsible. But I just think at that stage, I, um, I was just excited that I was, you know, again not really reporting to anybody. I was still, my, you know, my quest... Was, you enjoyed that even then? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did, actually, that truth be told. And I remember thinking, and again, it's crazy because I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have any of that sort of stuff. So I also didn't know what to do with earning this money, right? Right. Up to your ears and chicken at this so point. I, up, <laughs> that's right. I went, I upgraded to turkey. <laughs> no, but then, I, I mean, I, I, this sounds, I was such a wanker. I mean, you know, I bought myself a convertible Porsche, I had a Harley Davidson. I had all these cars. I had all this sort of stuff. And only now, again, it's so funny. Like, you know, I thought I was uh, uh, king shit then for a moment. I look back and I think if I saw myself in that car now, I'd be like, oh, that little douchebag's driving his dad's car, which is probably what every single person thought. Ended up crashing at racing a Volvo, which is another terribly sad story, which tells you everything as well. But so I didn't know what to do, but, but I've always been just, all right, the work, the work, the work. That's actually all I've ever cared about. That's the only thing that's been a consistent in my whole career is I get off on creating or being involved or supporting or adding value to 
putting great things out in the world. If you don't look back and cringe, I feel like you've squandered your youth to some extent. Oh, I mean, as I said, I mean, there's things I wish I had done and hadn't done with my good fortune. But as far as my career, there aren't steps where I'm like, I shouldn't have taken that job or, you know, things right. happen for right. And because I always made a decision based on what I believed would be the environment I could do the work in, not what my parents expect me to do or what the industry thought I should do or what's better for my bank account or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, at, at that age, at Oman, um, there are skills you possess that sort of make up for other skills that you couldn't possibly possess yeah. in full until you just gained the experience. Was there a mentor or a figure in the advertising world maybe that you didn't even know that you were attempting to sort of emulate while you were figuring out your own management style? Definitely. I mean, it, the, the, the guy who ended up leaving, Simon, Simon Reynolds was his name. I really admired his bravery um, to just push the boundaries with work. So that's why I went to work for him. And I always thought that, you know, and he sort of set a precedent, which was you don't have to wait to be a certain age to, you know, it's not like you do your dues through years. It's like, right. you know, you, you, your, your career moves at the speed of your talent and effort as opposed to years on a CV. And I always thought that that was really true. So, I, I, you know, he was a great uh, mentor to me in those days. And, you know, we were very different people. But he also was very funny and, you know, didn't take himself too seriously. Like, and it made me really, you know, you can, you can be successful or strive to be successful and not take yourself too seriously. Yeah. yeah. You just brought it up a little bit. But, you know, whether in Australia or Singapore or London or New York and, and, and many stops in the culmination to creating your own agency, you sound like the kind of governing principle has always been influential work, create interesting influential work. Um, I, I told Susan Hoffman this on the show. There was a sort of disproportionate amount of uh, inspiration I got from one ad in particular, Honda Gurr in the early two oh, thousand. Amazing. Ad. That was the one where one I of said my favorites of all time. Yeah, I said, you know what? I'm going to not go to law school, and I'm going to go do this instead. Yeah. Um, did you have? Did you? Was there a moment where you saw something that represented the height of influential work from which kind of uh, a, a lot of your your motivation spawned? Yeah, I think what you know. One of the advantages of being an Australian is we're equally influenced by two very different markets, the US and the UK. So we grow up cherry picking the best from both. And you know, so at the Oman days, you know, I used to look at the stuff that was coming out of even wide and early days and think, you know, there's some amazing stuff there. And I also used to look at some stuff coming out of the UK, which was so irreverent and bold that I loved it so much. And there was an, there's an agency called Hal Henry. Charlie Cutlery, which was incredible, or um, uh, uh, GGT, Gold Greeners Trot. Again, that's aging me. I'm nodding yes, but I don't know what you're talking but about. But if you look them up, yeah. and, you know, that was sort of, a, you know, GGT was sort of at the end of it and Hal Henry was at the beginning. They were just so fresh, so fresh for whatever the category. And I just thought there was real insight and humor and, and they just – reverence for the right reasons and emotion. And I just was like, advertising is so much more powerful than it's given credit for when it's done that way. I just thought, I just never want to do advertising that's bland. I never want to do stuff that's cookie cutter. Um, and I'm going to work my ass off, you know, to see if I can create that sort of stuff. And I just always wanted to create stuff that was distinctive, not different for the sake of being different, because that's a dangerous path to go down. But I also, you know, I was so taken by that stuff. And even, you know, I used to look at the MTV interstitials and think like, oh my God, they're, sure. they're amazing. You know, like that sort of stuff, you know, such creativity and distinction and all that. So I, I was sort of always desperate to 
to move beyond the confounds of what most advertising was. Yeah. Well, and you said that you've always put that ahead of the paycheck, but I would think that that really got tested when you became CCO of Publicis. And it's all of a sudden you're probably confronted with the, you know, do I accept the golden handcuffs? So I always valued myself in the sense that or I always uh, advocated for myself when it came to going into role that, you know, I had if they had high expectations of me, I had high expectations of them, how they treat me and what they allow me to do, and also how they pay me. You know, so I, I would never take a job because it was a, the, a salary, but when I did take a job, I would always agree to a contract that was, I thought, made them feel some pain and really tested whether they wanted me or not, and also put me under pressure to deliver. I, I, I Again, a competitive person, I like the stress of feeling like there's something at stake. So I wanted to deliver. So even before the, you know, moving to London and all that, which was a great thing too, you know, there was, everyone was telling me not to do the London job because a, a foreigner wouldn't make it in, which in a place that was established as Saatchi's. And that made me want to do it more. But then when I went to the Saatchi, I mean, from Saatchi's to, because, um, you know, I spent, what did I spend? You know, three, seven, seven years at Saatchi's between Singapore and, um, and uh, London. But I knew at the end of London that I, I wanted to do something different because I could almost predict the conversations I was going to have the following year. And that, oh, you know, repetition scares me more than failure. And so when the, the absurd global CCO job was sort of offered there, I, I kind of knew in my heart, like, that's not for you. But then that made me think, well, that's why you should try it and see if you can do it. And it was, you know, you, you do start to challenge yourself thinking, am I taking that for the right reasons? But I did believe, you know, maybe that's where I'm too arrogant or too ignorant or whatever it is. I was like, I'm going to give this a shot. I really think I can do it. If anyone can do it, I'm going to give it a good shot. Saying that, I did negotiate a contract when I went into that job, which was <laughs> it's such a stupid thing to do, but it was actually, I knew that it, was, it mattered. They had to, you know, they had to lock me down. And I knew that they were part of a much bigger holding company that owned all these different um, networks. So my contract was that I had to be the highest paid person, creative person, in all their networks by a dollar. And then what I, now what I did, why I did that was because I knew for the, as long as I was at Publicis, the next creative upstart that went into any company, if they negotiated up, I'd get pushed up. So I basically put the, my contract negotiations in the hands of every other person that came into the company. So I knew that that was an outrageous thing to ask for. I also knew that that put me on the firing line if things weren't going well, because if the agency wasn't delivering, the first thing to scratch off is uh, the highest paid creative person. Sure. But I, at the time, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to give them, every, you know, everything I've got. I'm going to really, I'm not going to take this cynically. I'm not going to bounce around the, the networks. I mean, not bounce around the country just shaking hands and kissing babies. I'm going to really try. Um, but after two years, I was like, all right, I've tried. This isn't for me. This is not who I am. You know, I need to be doing work. I, ne- I I don't want to just be wheeled into meetings. I don't want the phone to call when there's a, a phone call every time there's, you know, I was turning into an ambassador. Yeah. That's not who I am. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a creative person. I'll tell you that what you're talking about, about creative people knowing their worth. Um, you also mentioned this in your opening remarks at Cannes this year and, and, and asked this question that sort of tensely hung in the air, which was, you know, why can't creative people get rewarded for what they do for agencies? And I'll be honest, it sort of shocked me to hear this coming from you because I'm thinking like, 
isn't part of the job of a guy who runs his own agency to keep his labor costs as low as possible and to not bring this this issue into the forefront? No, because, I, you know, I, I want creative people, you know, to earn as much as they can and justify it. They have to justify it. Right. I mean, look, of course, when you're starting an agency, um, you know, you have to go by off, you know, a wing and a prayer and fumes and all that sort of stuff and you bring like-minded people in and all that sort of stuff who, you know, you can't pay danger money to or, or lazy right. money to. But, you know, once you can afford to pay people, I'm happy to pay people. You know, I don't think people should be just for the privilege of working for me that they should undercut themselves. I'm not going to overpay someone, but I definitely don't want to underpay someone. Right now, some hot shit ECD who's negotiating uh, with your HR department is listening to this and going, I'm going to ask for one dollar more. And it's going to go horrible for that guy. By well, the way. if they can deliver <laughs> on it. I mean, that's the whole thing. And part of me would be like, wow, kudos to you if you really believe you've got that. Yeah, you sit right here next to me. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, Let's see what you not? got. Like, ask for what you can get. But at the same time, as I said I've never, I was never a money assessed person. Like when you go back to Australia, I even though I had twenty five percent of the company and all, like I quit. I quit and left for nothing. They, you know, when the, when the agency merged and sold and all that with with um, BBO, you know, the traditional things they lock you up for three. Like I was like, no, I'd rather walk away with nothing and my freedom. Yeah. A wise old man once told me he sort of looked back at at the professions that his friends took. And he said, you know, I look back and my friends who became lawyers, you know, I don't want to stereotype all lawyers, but yeah. more of them never fell in love with the profession and, and what they felt like they were signing up for in law school turned out to be a false bill of goods. And my friends who became doctors, they, you know, they certainly met maybe the most important calling, but as a result of some of the complexity of, of insurance companies. Mm. It wasn't exactly the job they thought they, they signed up for. The guys who, and, and women who decades later seem to be the most fulfilled are the business people because, you know, some days are elation, some days are deflation, some days you walk home and your feet don't touch the ground, some days you walk home and you're the world's biggest piece of shit, but you're always in the cage, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you seem like a guy to me who takes great joy in being in the cage. I never thought about that way, but I think so definitely. I like being, you know, to quote Hamilton, in, in the room where it happens. Like, I definitely want to be part of culture and business and feel like I'm contributing, you know, to whatever it is that I'm part of. And, yeah, like, we are, it's such a crazy up-and-down industry. Always has been. It's filled with, you know, the, the, the most ultimate highs and the most frustratingly, you know, stab yourself in the knee type of disappointment and, you know, craziness. And the only thing that gets you through that is not just the people around you, but is the, the greater mission. And, you know, also the good fortune and realism that the industry we are in, we get paid to, to, to daydream. And I do say that to, to anyone, a newbie in it. I mean, you can't predict anything, but you can predict that it's going to be unpredictable, which I like. I can remember Droga 5 just getting off the ground when I was at CPB, 2006, 2007, and then... You know, cut to you accepting the Lion of St. Mark last year. And I was thinking to myself, like, this agency has been around for 12 years. That's that's not very long. Um, <laughs> Feels like a long time to us. Well, in terms of how you set your goals, because they've obviously been aggressive goals. And, and and I'm sure there's been years where you've where you've achieved things that weren't part of the goal set that you were happy to achieve. And, and it's sort of the confluence of, of luck and timing and skill and hard work. But um, in terms of how you set your goals, do you approach – each individual year with a sort of like a finite mentality, the way that an athlete thinks about a season? No, I, not, not to that context. You know, I'm definitely not 
that disciplined, but I, I'm not a big rear vision mirror person. You know, I have this paranoia about, I don't want to be one of those people that lives off past glories. I can have an appreciation for things that have happened. In the past. At some point, but maybe just not anytime just soon. Just not now. Right. Like, you know, as I said, it's a, it's a, um, it's a fast moving industry. I'm a creative person that needs to feel validated and uh, excited and interested and engaged. And the only way to do that is is with what's in front of you, not what you've done in the past. So, and I, I just kept on feeling, you know, I have a, a, a saying in the office, which is, you know, sometimes we're falling forward, sometimes we're sprinting forward. As long as we're moving forward, right. then I'm happy. And that's the truth of maybe my mentality and, and, and who we are. And I was, you know, 12 years is a lot. It's so weird because it, it, it happened really quickly. I mean, we were very, very fortunate that we, we hit the ground running from the start. And right. it was sort of like the spotlight was on us almost from the, from the very start. So we had, you know, we wanted to live up to that hype and actually wanted to exceed it and not be pigeonholed. But I was also lucky that I had opportunities to work with amazing people in different parts of the world and had a lot of success in other agencies yeah. that all contributed in different ways to what Droga 5 could be or should be. Yeah. Um, you've recently said advertising's not going away. Really shitty advertising is going away, and I bid that farewell, unquote. Um, what is the defining characteristic of shitty advertising? And do you believe that it's expanding or shrinking just in terms of like raw tonnage? <laughs> we, there's a million things we don't take notice of that is just a waste of money. And when it's done well, we're all like, wow, that was incredible and that's amazing and you can see why they did that and the, the, the ramifications of that. And I just want to be on the right side of the ledger where it's, you know, yes, technology is shape-shifting and we have to sort of move into different platforms and embrace different elements of it. But creativity and an idea is an idea and I, I don't care what it shape-shifts into. I just want to be part of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not... And I surprised myself because, you know, I grew up in a more old-school way where it was about print and TV and, you know, 30-second ads and radio. And, you know, you sort of master that discipline. But I, I never wanted to hang my hat on one thing. I was always like, I just like being part of... And if, if it plays... If it's not... You know, we're in the time business, right? <laughs> That's all we're in. You know, we're asking someone to give us some of their time, make it worth their while. And I want to earn that. And that's why I don't think advertising is not going away. How it comes to light is, is, and those that still operate in the assumption game of they assume if they do this or if they spend this that they're going to get your attention, they're the ones that are going to be extinct. Yeah. That old school mentality, do you think that it it puts you in a position at your agency to sort of serve as like the guardian against um, technology posing as ideas? Because I think it's, it's, it can be easy to chase that. It can be easy to chase sort of technological trends. And then you look up and you're like, was this even an idea? Well, we're not, we're not, we're not even guardians of – I don't want us to be guardians of anything, you know, beyond our own integrity. Um, I mean, technology is one of those things. I actually – people want us to take a stance and be like, oh, you know, technology is, you know, this side of the equation and we're over here. I'm like, I'm all, if technology helps and enhances, I'm all for it. And, and – you know, sometimes time is the idea, just when you do something. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, so I think it's, you know, in, I think if you just putting something on a new platform without thinking about why you're using that platform or how it's being received, you know, that's where bad uses of technology have, have, have corrupted us. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I used to say the same thing about, you know, if you don't have an idea, put a celebrity in it. Well, but now it depends, you know, the idea might be how you use the celebrity or what, you know what I mean? So it's, I'm not anti anything. So, you know, I don't want to be pigeonholed as like, we're, we're just about this, but fundamentally there has to be a rhyme and reason why we do something beyond just that's cool or that's exciting or that's new. Right. And we're an industry that's chased new and exciting and, and that for too long. The other, the other thing you mentioned in your opening remarks at Cannes last year, it was essentially a thesis that like everything is going to be okay as long as we don't forget the power of a simple, big creative idea. Um, and I've heard you kind of espouse this in some different forms of just don't forget the power of a simple idea. The industry is going to be okay if we don't forget the value of ideas. Um, I think about sometimes creative directors, the job of a creative director in addition to in addition to the production of ideas is within an agency, you need to be sort of like the origin point of optimism from which everyone else can sort of, um, you know, shift their, their fear, their fear into confidence about an idea in the broader industry. Is this a, is this almost a role that you're playing now? Just letting people know, like there's, there's always a reason to feel like the industry is about to die tomorrow, but everything's going to be okay. David Droga said so. I wouldn't be so bold to say that, but I would definitely say I do believe that, you know, maybe I'm mocked for being too optimistic and it doesn't mean I'm blindly optimistic. I understand that, that we are on a duress and we have all these challenges and we have to, you know, it's harder for us to earn our living as an industry and stuff like that. But I still believe at the end of the day, the fundamental truths of what move us as a society and, and as beings are the same. You know, the certain emotions that, you know, desires and safety and, you know, all those kind of love and all these things, those levers are still always going to exist. And if we can work out how to use those, not cynically, responsibly, with creativity on the behalf of our clients, I think we're going to be fine. I really believe that. Yeah. Do you know what blows my mind is, so, you know, I've had a couple of friends who've worked for you over the years. And so my question always naturally is like, so do you like see David around? Like, is he at the agency or is he like pretty much retired? And they're like, no, he's like, I showed him some work today. And then he like, we sent him some cuts and then he was at the wall looking at some work. I'm like, you're describing a working ECD essentially. Um, you, you, it sounds, I know there's other stuff that comes with the job, but it sounds like even when you had the option to, you never stopped working. You're there rowing the boat every day. Well, I, I, again, and I have to say this with respect to, I have some spectacular ECDs and creative leaders in the, in the company. So I'm not a heavy-handed one. I mean, I, 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 try and, I try and put my time where I think I can add value. You know, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily drawn to what's going to be the shiniest thing. You know, I'm drawn to things that yeah. it might be what's the hardest thing or what's something that needs some help at this stage or... You know, and so that's what I'm drawn to. But also for my own sanity, I want to be... It's the thing that I'm most comfortable in. You know, I can sit in any meeting and I sort of have a a business appreciation and that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, our new business plan, our security is our output. And if that's the thing that I'm most comfortable in and entrust myself the most, then I'm going to sort of make sure that I spend time there. As long as I'm not stifling or... Um, not allowing other people to grow and stuff like that. You know, I do, I certainly trust my opinion. It doesn't mean I don't listen to other people's opinions. No, it's never been described to me as like David is doing everybody's homework for them. It's just like, he likes it. I think he likes this part. I like it. I mean, I don't, you know, my wife always says to me, you know, why do you, why do we still work? Why do you still work? Yeah. That was sort of, that's sort of my question for you. Because I need to, I love it. I actually love it. You know, I mean, there are days I don't love it. 
But how often do you get to have these types of conversations and you have these meetings with some incredible people? And, I, you know, I think about the people I work with and have worked with. I mean, there are so many impressive, talented human beings that I've crossed paths with or, you know, sat in foxholes with. I wouldn't trade that for the world. When I worked at CPB in the mid-2000s, I always felt like a little dysfunction and chaos were just cheap fuels that powered any in, in, any creative yeah. endeavor, like, you know, overly predictable systems and regimens can lead to overly predictable outcomes. Um, do you feel... Do you feel that at your agency to some degree, and do you try to create those conditions to some degree? Well, I don't want to manufacture it. I mean, you know, we, we've gr we grew so fast, um, and we got really, really big really quickly. And with that comes pitfalls. You know, suddenly things get slower, and there are more opinions than there need to be, and, you know, you have to hire faster than you can vet. And, you know, so, so managing how you do that, that's the thing that stresses me. And making sure that, you know, in the beginning you hire everyone you know and trust. You know, right. that's your first inner circle. And then you hire everyone you've wanted to work with before. And then it's sort of these concentric, I mean, these circles go out now and out. And eventually it gets to the stage where the person hiring the next generation is someone you didn't hire. Right. You know what I mean? So it, you, there has to be this faith and trust. And, you know, fortunately more times than not we've got it right. Is it hard for you to love people who came after the place blew up compared to those who took the leap of faith it's before the place blew up? I'm very conscious of the fact that there are those that I know very well and have known for a long time. I mean, you know, sometimes people in our office are like, well, you know, there's the Lafayette crew and then there's the Wall Street crew. Right. You know, this isn't something I think. I, they think, you know, when we left Lafayette, we were about 130 people, 150 people. And then, you know, last year, this time we were about 700 people. I think this year we're about 610, which says a lot about, you know, the start of the year we had. But it's very strange where you don't know that many people, and I do want to know that many. You know, I'm not a closed-door person, but, you know, I don't need to... I also don't want to just walk around and freak people out, like, hey, you know, sure. that sort of stuff. Um, at Droga5, you've worked hard to create conditions for risk-taking. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes... You know, risk taking comes more naturally to some than others. Is being less afraid of risk a skill that you can teach people? You know, the one thing about getting bigger, right, is you get more and more responsible people whose job it is to tell you that you can't do something. Right. You know, like I think of our early days, you know, there would have been some well intentioned, smart people who would have been able to provide 50 reasons why we should never have done the Mark Echo thing. But that didn't exist. Right. You know, at the end of the day, I was like, well, you know, even when someone was saying, you know, you know, you could be breaking the Patriot Act and this is, you know, potentially, I was like, well, apart from saying what's the Patriot Act, I was like, and? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What's, what's the worst that can happen is the agency fails and I go back and get another job? Yeah. For a dollar less? No. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. It's, it's um, what's the thing that you fear the most? Okay. we the, the greatest fear we have is that this one idea will collapse the entire agency and we'll all have to go and get other jobs. If that's the worst case scenario, we can accept those consequences. It's yeah, worth we're, it. We're not, you know, we're not, uh, you know, Marines going off to risk something where it goes, if it goes badly, you know, that's life and limb. Yeah. You, know, we're, you know, I just, I just think I have a self-awareness of our place in the business world and the industry we're in and how fortunate we are. Right. And 100%, you know, I do, I don't want to, be cavalier with, you know, other people's lives as far as careers and stuff like that. I don't want to be like, well, if we lose it and we have to fire people, you know, I don't want that. Right. 
But I genuinely believe, you know, making decisions based on belief system more so than, um, um, you know, some Harvard MBA or something like that, like, you know, what you were taught. I'm yeah. like, you, you got to trust your... Well, it's just very obtuse to think about it just in terms of winning and losing. It's like there's actually something worse than losing. There's losing with the with the residual uh, uh, gut punch of saying we lost and I lost trying to do it the way that I didn't even want to do it in the first place. That's worse than losing. I mean, you don't, don't you always – and we've, uh, probably everyone's learned this lesson. You know, the day you cave into a client and give them what they want, that's always the reason they fire you. <laughs> right. That's always the reason they fire you. Is in six months of like, well, the work with them, you know, you're like, oh, shit, I was, you know what I mean? I think in all our hist- in, in our, our agency careers, we've all done that at some stage, you know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, you know, I'll just make it a good me and the client wants this and, you know, just calm them down and you end up getting... Can't all be winners. Yeah, but that, that, that always ends up being the reason you lose. Right. You know, it's kind of... And I'm not always right. I mean, holy shit, but I, I don't know. I'm a, maybe that's the benefit of being an Australian and a... And a a reasonably confident person where I've just always, I'll bet on the right people, smart people with good intentions every time. Yeah. I really will. Well, success begets success in our industry, at least in the short term. And I think maybe around the fifth or sixth year at Droga 5, you guys felt a pretty nice uh, wave of growth and uh, and and brought on some new clients. And um, I, I was talking to Boguski about this, and he was sort of lamenting what he was going through when he left CPB in 2008, that, you know, this success leads to bigger clients and bigger agency revenue and bigger risk aversion. And in some ways, it feels like um, clients feel like the risky part is achieved by hiring the risk-taking agency. And now what's next is we're going to teach you how the old agency did stuff. And, and um, we're, we feel very good about the fact that we've hired you and now you're going to adjust to our way of doing things. Have, have you been confronted with that? And, and, and definitely, yeah. that's such a, a great way to articulate. That's so true because, you know, eventually in, when you start, you're getting all the, the feistier, braver clients, you know, they're going to take a chance with an upstart and all that sort of stuff. And then when you get a certain amount of success, you're right. You've, then you start to fulfill a role where, yeah, just a client thinks job done by hiring a feisty agency. and But when you present work to them that's, you know, of the ilk of what they were, you know, what you've been doing for other clients, they're sort of shell-shocked. And they do try and turn you in. And there have been times, and, you know, there was an example, you know, we lost a big client this year. And so that secretly, they never really wanted anything that we did. Right. And, you know, what made it worse is, you know, um, they didn't treat us that well either. Some of the people, they, they got... But um, I think my ego tricked me into believing that we could turn them. And, you know, they paid us a lot of money. And I kept on thinking, we'll turn them, we'll turn them, we'll turn them. And as time went by, I just knew, it just with every meeting and how they treated our people and the work they were pushing for. And, you know, I think I, was, I, could, I could tell that it was just going to end in tears. Um, but that, that comes from, you know, that's my fault. As I said, I, I think I bullshitted myself and asked that we could do it. Yeah, you don't want to hinder growth, and the job of the company is to grow. Yeah, it is to grow, but not at all at all costs. And I think we, you know, we got we gorge ourselves a little bit. Um, you know, I think, I think, yeah. Is that is that one of the most important roles you play at your company now? Is being the voice of selectivity? I think I play one of those. I mean, I definitely am one of the the the, the loudest voices in that. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I have some very um, 
incredible partners in you know for head of strategy, head of account services. I mean, you know, and we we have very honest discussions about stuff, but we definitely make decisions on who we think is like-minded ambition. They, they can be tough as hell, but as long as there's like-minded ambitions and mandates and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, and we we definitely not through arrogance, but through self-preservation, turn down more business um, than we say yes to. Right. Just because you know, a you can't take on that much, and if you take on stuff that doesn't really want you, you know, culture can be corrupted really quickly. I've heard you say, "quote Every time we've tried to pretend we are something we're not, it's never it's never worked." Unquote. Um, what aren't you that you've made the mistake of attempting to be? I. Th- <laughs> that's a great question. I think it, there's different parts. I think you know sometimes we've pretended that we're, you know, really really corporate. We're not. You know, sometimes, um, you know, let me go back a bit. In the beginning, you know, you have to bluff a little bit as you're growing agency, right? You know, you in the year two, you bluff that you're more digital than you. Yeah. There's a whole army of people back there just revving to go. (laughs) That's right. What's that movie where there's the door? He goes, I'm going to open the door and show you that. (laughs) What is that movie? Grifters or something like that? Um, I just think, you know, in the beginning, we also, sometimes we, we... we tried to be so professional without sort of any ambition, thinking that it was, you know, we can just grow really slowly with a client and not, and just be content with just moving things incrementally. And that's not who we are. Uh, you know, we don't have a natural resting state like that. Like we, we need to be pushing things. We need to be working with people who challenge us. And I think times we've, you know, we've thought that we could play the game of just, all right, let's just say yes, to this huge client and, kind of just give them slightly better than what they want. That's not who we are. Like, you know. The people who come to work at your agency came for a reason and they're never going to be satisfied with that output. 100%. And and every day that, you know, we still beat ourselves up. If, you know, we, we, some of our clients, I mean, they all come in different shapes and and forms. And, you know, I think I'd I'd never want it to be where someone said, you know, I came to Droga 5 and I didn't get that experience. And I'm sure we've we've let some people down along the way. I'm sure we have. But, you know, at least we care about it. And we always do diagnostics to just make sure that everyone has an opportunity on their desk at all times. Um, my other favorite quote that you say that I've stolen and not given I you credit for. Quotes. Yeah, go on. Yeah, this is the last one, I swear. Okay. But this is an important one. This might be your best one. Oh, okay. Here we go. Giving a shit isn't included in the scope, but we do it anyway. True. Come on. That's really good. It's, but it's so true. Like, I really mean that. Like, you can say anything to a client. But people can't pay you to care. They just can't. You either do or you don't. You're either wired to care or not. On any given day, how might the differentiator of giving a shit manifest in practice? Well, I think it's it's before you even get to the day today. Again, it goes back to the vetting process of who you work with. You know what I mean? I feel like, um, you know, this, this after the sort of the, I'll tell this in context to sort of you know. So this year has been this has been our first challenging year. We've been sort of bulletproof up until the start of this year where we had, you know, two horrific things. We had, you know, obviously the the, the well-documented issue with my great friend. And, um, and then we also, you know, in the first quarter lost a chunk of business. And we had to lay off the first amount of people in our history, which was just so, threw me so out of sorts, all of this in one period of time. But um, 
we did sort of look at just from the business side of things going, actually, you know, we had some accounts that didn't want what we were about. So let's go back to who we are and vetting who we are and, and go after clients based on the, the size of their mandate and their ambitions and what place they role they have in culture. And then that guarantees you're really invested and care about it. So it's, again, it's the vetting process. But, I, you know, I can't, I'm not a... I'm an all-in type of person. I can't go through the motions. I'm just, I just can't. I don't know why. Maybe it'd be, life would be easier. It must be very fulfilling for you to look at a creative team that maybe has worked really hard but has never had that thing that's really popped uh, or, or never really had that thing that's been a sort of career-defining moment. And, I mean, one of the powers that you have is when you say, this is going to be great, you should work on this really hard. You should spend extra time making sure the language is perfect, mm. the edit's perfect, that a different weight comes with that and there's a certain faith that they can take you on that like David said this is going to be great. I so, hope so. We, I hope so. I mean that's the thing and I don't want to you know use that in any empty shape or form but I definitely hope so because you know anytime people have given me opportunities that carried any type of societal ramifications or creative you know I, I took it so seriously and I you know and I, and I and it's on me and the other creative leaders in the company particularly the day-to-day creative leaders in the company to make sure that everyone has those opportunities. Yeah. And 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 fully understanding and respecting that you have day-to-day creative leaders who you trust implicitly and you have great business partners. It is important and it does matter that you're there most days and that you've got your face in the work, you know, most days. Um as you become a more international agency mm. uh, with offices abroad, what are some of the challenges sort of exporting that culture of New York and figuring out how to scale your impact? Well, it 100% comes down to who leads the company. You know, you can't, we're not a franchise and you can't just will it as well. And, you know, we've made some mistakes along the way. Um, but like London's a great example. You know, they're, they're, there's some great leaders to that. Their objective isn't to become a smaller version of Droga 5 New York. You know, they're, they're, they're obsessed with forging their own path. And, you know, David Colbys, who's an amazing creative, very different to me, very pure creative, quirky, smart as hell. You know, he's trying to put his own fingerprints on it and do it in context of that market. Yeah. He can't be the next David Droga, but he could be the first David Colbys. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, you know, I think when we had a Sydney office, I think one of the biggest problems that they faced was they would... So desperate to try, they were trying to emulate what we were, and it was never going to be the same. Right. Different market, different people, different clients, and all that sort of stuff. So they could never really be the agency that they should have been. And, you know, that was very sad, you know, particularly my home market, where it was sort of, you know, I didn't, I wasn't going to, ha- if it wasn't great, I didn't want to have an agency. Uh, part of your job relies heavily on your own creative taste. When you pinpoint an idea that you see promise in, can you describe that sensation? Are you exuberant in the room? Are you are you guarded in the room? I'll tell you, it's very simple. As soon as I as soon as I hear an idea that I like, or I actually almost get annoyed. Not annoyed. I'm annoyed that the idea hasn't happened yet, and that sends me into a frenzy of. What do I need to do to make sure this idea happens? Now that someone says it, said it, now it's like in it's like in the world, and it feels like world. someone's going to take like, it. Right. Because as soon as you like something, I'm like, that is a great idea. You know, and we can fine tune it. We can get it. I'm like, that has to happen. So then, as I said, I really whip myself up into a frenzy of. It's not like a eureka moment. Like, oh my god, this is fantastic. I'm, you know, if I like something, obviously I would tell them why I like it or what I feel like they should do to it to shape it. But I absolutely get into a frenzy of, holy shit! If that doesn't happen. I'm going to be so pissed off. Right. 
there's probably a thousand reasons why that can't happen or won't happen. But now I'm going to be able to use all my weaponry and whatever I can to try and make that as good as possible and for it to happen. You've done this enough that you, you imme- it immediately hits you like a ton of bricks. Definitely. The burden of how hard this is going to be and how unlikely this is going to be. Yeah, 100%. That's the whole thing. No idea how we, you know, sometimes they're simple and easy, but most of the time it's not. Sometimes you're like, I don't know how we're going to pull this off. I hope that we can. I don't even jump to the, oh, okay, I hope we sell this. I'm already in my head of like, okay, this has to happen. Yeah. What the fuck do we need to do to make this happen and make sure it's right? You mentioned something really interesting. The company's grown. Not everybody knows. Everyone knows of you, but not everyone knows you. You can't have a personal relationship with 700 people. If you walk up to people in the kitchen and be like, hey, how you doing? It might be interpreted in yeah. in an unintended way. Um, but when you are working with creatives, when you when you are in the work, how do you create an environment where CDs and maybe less accomplished creatives around you are able to f- speak truth to power? And do you ever sense people sort of nodding yes because of your stature in the organization versus because they agree with what I, you're I saying. I do think about that sometimes. Like, of course, you know, sometimes with power comes, you know, complete agreement from those around you when they don't. But I'd, I'd, I'd like to think, and maybe people who know me who aren't, you aren't interviewing can tell you in private whether this is true or not, but, like, I think I'm a very down-to-earth person. And I've, I'm very comfortable enough where, you know, when we're, if I'm sitting with creatives or we're brainstorming or something like that, I'm not afraid to say something that's stupid. That might be an idea that is just ludicrous, and I might preface it by that because I want to create an or off the, create an environment where they think like, okay, this is a safe space, we can talk. Do you ever get a facial expression from like a twenty six year old? It's like, you're the great David Droga. That was dumb. <laughs> I'm probably a thousand times more that. Not that I know of. Not that I know. I'm, I'm sure I've said dumb things, but also I don't want to put it in an environment where it's always just a review, because sometimes that's when people have to feel like they're on show. Right. Sometimes I'm like, let's just get together and talk about the projects you're on. And, you know, their ECD or their CDs vetted things and they sort of come in and we just talk grand, you know, for an hour about stuff or debate stuff, you know, and, and chat about stuff. It's not always, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to just be yes, no. And also I think the big thing really with any leader is anyone can say yes or no. If you explain why something is a yes or why something is a no, I think that that helps people understand. Including but beyond your creative responsibilities day to day, do you worry more about being too hard on people or too soft on people? Um, I think I'm – this is where I'm a contradiction. You know, I don't like confrontation in a sense and, I, you know, I, I think I'm a soft touch and fair on certain things. I think the only time I'm hard is – the work, because that's not personal. Do you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? It does. It's. I think for young creatives, it is hard to separate themselves from the work. I think as you get older, no, you get I'll, better at it. Again, that always goes back to explaining why right. you don't like something, or, or always give them builds, or give them examples of what you're looking for. So you, you don't. I don't want anyone to leave a meeting with me unclear or just thinking, "Oh, I let him down." Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Even if I fucking hate everything they've done, I want them to leave the room thinking, oh, I think I know why he didn't like it or I understand why or he gave me opportunities or he gave us an insight or something like that. And same with the, you know, the CDs and the ECDs. And the, you know, we've also, you know, the thing I'm spoiled with most is I have some fucking nice people as well. Like there was a, 
the one common thread between the oddballs and our agency is, is, is there's a genuine kindness and humanity, and I really mean that. Like, that carries a lot of weight for me. Like, I don't have room for talented douchebags. Right. You know, I, that's, I just wouldn't tolerate that. And even in the unlikely event that someone brings 10 wrong things, if you're willing to invest the time, something will be so wrong that from it will spawn oh, the insight that will yeah, lead to I the mean, right thing. So being pushed and moved and educated in their careers. And I think that that's part of our job is not just, you know, it is, it's, you know, this is all great in practice. And, you know, there's, there's times where it's, it's such a fast paced industry that sometimes you, you maybe you have to be mercenary on certain things, but you know, our job is, that's it goes back to, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. You know, we have expectations of anyone who works there and they have expectations of us to train them and create an environment that's, allows them to flourish yeah and if we don't do that then we're letting them down you know yeah when you see yourself in a uh young creative yeah. good or bad what is it you're most often seeing i really like people that are self-starters um i really like people that are not advertising obsessed you know what i mean yeah. I, th I think they have an, a, a genuine respect for the industry but they don't have to be an encyclopedia of advertising you know, and, I'd, and people that bring and that they're they're into not just how clever something is or how funny something is, but you know the conversations about what this might do or or the ramifications of what they might be or. And I like people who uh, think big. Yeah, in the event that your ECDs bring you in on something that deserves your attention, um, how do you know when something is done? Are you someone that might be accused of being an incessant tinkerer? No, I, I, oh shit, I don't even know. That's it's hard. I, I don't think so. I, I, I think that I, you know, up until something goes out the door, there's always a chance that something can be improved. But that doesn't mean by virtue I have to be looking to improve things all the way through. You know, there are times where you just feel like, okay, that is great, and you know, lights off, computer off, everyone will leave the room before we right. fuck it up more. Right. But um, I'm all. I, I do like exploring as many potential ways to to solve a problem until the you know until the alarm goes off when you can bring finality to things in a way few people in your organization yeah, can that's which one can... of the privileges that i do have and i'm aware of that that you know i can i make the judgment calls on a lot of things right and you know again i have to live by the that decision and if i'm wrong i'm wrong as long as i admit to that but um you know, look, it's a privilege to, to have any authority in this industry, particularly as a creative person, because so much of it is subjective. Yeah. You know, what I think is great might be very different if someone else's thinks is great. But, you know, that's the privilege of having my agency. Yeah. Um, ideas are only as good as our ability to sell them. Uh, would you describe yourself as a good salesman? I think that I am sincere. So I think people know that I'm sincere. Do you know what I mean? I don't think I'm the... The, I, I don't think I'm slick. I don't think I'm the most articulate person. I think that I definitely speak with sincerity about something when I'm p passionate about it. And I, th and I think we live in an era now where sincerity is more important than anything because people want to know that you believe in something. It's easy to be sincere when you when you believe in the work. A hundred percent. Right. I mean, I assume it's like, well, if I'm going to be at that meeting, I'll be goddamned if I don't believe in this with every molecule yeah. of my being. You know, and sometimes we've sort of had to inflate that. It makes me feel guilty even saying that. But generally, I definitely feel like I'm a pretty transparent person people know whether i'm happy or unhappy you know i've never raised my voice in the office once um but yeah i i call it what it is and i and i and, I, and i'll go to bat and maybe i talk too much <laughs> it means but uh yeah 
Do you talk too much in meetings? I think I do. But by the way, it's you started the agency. No, the people who are in the room want to hear from you. True, but I'm also conscious that you know I don't want to be the person that feels you know I don't need to hear my voice. I don't need to, you know. And I got some exceptionally bright people who bring a different point of view, which is sometimes more necessary. You know? Do you ever do you ever grapple with nerves before big meetings? No, I mean I did in my younger years. You were nervous. You were nervous before this podcast, for sure. I've been terrified. I've yeah. been, you know, I took up smoking again. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I think, I think when I was younger, I was nervous for things, and particularly if you're walking in an environment where you didn't know or believe in something. But that's also, you know, why when I give speeches, I don't write speeches anymore because, as long as you know, I know what I, you know, if I know generally what I want to talk about, then I'm comfortable talking about it. Right. Um, but there are there, there are things you get angry. I mean, you know, there are things that you. You want to go really well, so you can be anxious, a little bit anxious about them, and that's nothing wrong with that either. I think anxiety is a, 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 the right sort of anxiety it can be great. A little yeah. bit of nerves. Everyone needs to be a little bit nervous. When you stop getting nervous completely, that like you're either dead or you're a prick. <laughs> <laughs> you used to be more scripted early in your career, and now you sort of trust in your ability to hit on a couple themes and and deliver in the room. Yeah, yeah. if I'm talking about what you know, what's at hand and what, why I like something, then I, I, I feel like I can talk with authority and sincerity about that. Okay, here's a hot-button question. Let's do it. Is it okay for strategy to come after the idea? <laughs> well, we're blessed with it, genuinely. We're blessed with an exceptional um, creative idea. I mean, strategy. Let me start that again. We're very blessed that we have an exceptional strategy department. And they, uh, you know, they have helped um, shape our agency very, very much. And there are many times where they've had a great insight that's led to, you know, amazing creative. And there's other times where we would have got there anyway, and they've sort of shape shifted back to sort of backfill. Right. Whatever it takes, I don't care. Exactly. And by the way, if they come in and hear an idea that has nothing to do with the original strategy, and go, "Do you know why this is great?" Like, if you start, if you oh, start your true. point with, "Do you know why this is great?" I already love you as oh, a strategist. There's been yeah. many a time where, you know, the creators have cracked an amazing idea, and the the, the, the strategists have helped us understand and unpack why it's a great idea. You know, I, yeah. I don't care whatever road we take and whichever who what entry point, as long as it's it's the right thing to do. In the last five years, what have you gotten better at saying no to? Um. I would have said, I think I've got, oh, that's a good idea. That's been something. I think um, unnecessary meetings, I think I'm definitely better at that, saying no to that. Uh, I think I'm better at delegating than I have been. And that's not to get out of work. I just feel like that, you know, I realise I don't have to be the centre of the universe and everything. I have some pretty amazing people. Um, they're the main ones, I think. And, you know, obviously I'd like to think we've, we've come back to, we had a sort of a blip of a year, but we've got better at saying no to clients that don't really want what we're about or don't really have grand ambitions. Yeah, I mean, that that's going to, as long as you continue to succeed, that's going to continue to be an issue. That's a good problem to have, right? It's a great problem to have. You know, it's a great problem to have. You know, we've sort of been on a tear in the last six months. I think we went up to nine pitches in a row we won. And, but more importantly than the number of those is the... The categories and the opportunities and the clients behind those, I'm like really excited by. Do you show up to pitches? Most, uh, most of them. Not all of them. Most of them. Do you have a pretty active speaking role, or do you sort of open and close? 
depends. It's there's no, there's nothing scripted. It depends on the client. And if I, you know, I don't I don't feel that I need to pretend to be anybody or do. But if if, if it adds value to the meeting, definitely. Right. And um. Yeah. I'm a, look, I'm appreciative. I'm still to this day. I'm appreciative by anyone that is interested in working with us and 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 forging a relationship. I'm I'm appreciative of that, and I want them to know that we care about that. Yeah. What about managing creativity? Have you not cracked or gotten right to the extent that you wish all these years later? What do you mean? Either in the uh, review of work or in the handling of creative people, is there anything that feels like there's still work to accomplish? There is always work to accomplish. I mean, but I, I, the thing that is the same in all, you know, my life has changed a, a great deal in many facets in the last 30 years. But fundamentally, the, the thing that I'm still, as I said, I, I, I still go back to like, am I moved by that? It makes me sound like a soppy, but I, like, is there, is there some there there to this idea more than like, oh, that's clever. Right. Well, oh, that's funny. Do you ever find yourself explaining to younger people in the agency, like for whatever you lack in experience, you know, almost every brief starts with some information about the mystical cage beast known as the millennial. You're the fucking millennial. So like <laughs> the, the, the crude, um, the, 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 the crude bar that's simply like create ideas that if you legitimately interacted with in the world, you would find cool. I mean, is that oversimplifying it? No, not really. But like, you know, as I said, I also look at things through the lens of, you know, now I've got an 18 year old and a 13 year old boy and a 12 year old girl. And a five, I mean, I'll, I look at how they consume things and what they get. I mean, it's fucking crazy. You focus grouping your kids? Uh, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Oh, not pre. I'll never do stuff pre, ever. Because A, if, they don't, if I like something, they don't like something. I don't want to have to not like my child for a while. Mm. You know, I used to do that with my wife. And then we'd always get into arguments. I'd be like, what? And I'd be like, no, no, well, then you're wrong. Or she'd be like, well, you don't. And it, so it was always healthier not to. But I do. I mean, I'm fascinated by how they um, consume media and what they like and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. And even that, they don't watch TV, but they still know every major great TV ad. It just finds them. Yeah, it just finds them. It finds them. Well, they find it, but it's not through the channels we know. I've been I've been thinking about the Colin Kaepernick uh, ad, and it's like, this is the the simplest piece of print. I mean, it's a print ad, but it's not a print ad. No, what is it really? It's just, it's quite literally, it's what you just said. It's a thing that finds you. Thing. Really what that is, is, I mean, you know, like, look, they should give Nike the client marketer of the year because just the fact that they made that decision to use him as their spokesperson and doorstep, you know, I'm like, that is so bold. That's a statement. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And had that been in a print ad, had that been in a TV, I mean, I know it ended up being a TV, but it didn't really matter. You actually didn't even need the TV ad. We actually didn't. Yeah. No, the print ad was enough because that was all it needed. It just needed to put that name with that statement, with that brand, and that was enough. Now, my kids probably, I don't even know if they saw that print ad. They certainly know that Nike was behind Kaepernick and that sort of stuff. You know, and that's, that's the world we live in. So strong messages with some soul and, and, and um, purpose, they find, they find their audience. Yeah. They just do. Has a client ever had such unrealistic expectations of your agency because of the reputation that it was almost impossible to please them? Because it takes imagination to see something in a PDF and and imagine how great it could be. And not everyone possesses that in the world and on the client side, possesses the, the, the imagination to go like, okay, I see it. 
Um, so do, as a result of that, did you ever have uh, clients who were just kind of like, I don't know, guys, keep going because I can't see it. And so therefore, it's probably well, not definitely. there. I mean, you know, it goes back to the early days. I think, you know, one of the first clients that rang us after we did the Echo thing was a, a, a detergent. And they were like, we want something almost exactly the same as that. I'm like, what? You know what I mean? Like, they're just different worlds and different. I just definitely clients have a, I mean, again, I will say this, you know, it's, it's got to be hard to be a client too. When you're sitting on the receiving end of an agency pitching your ideas and some of them are, you know, putting you in your, out of your comfort zone and, you know, it's 10, 20, $100 million needed to put behind, the, you know, like, I think I've gone, I think I appreciate much more what clients have to face on the other side. So I'm definitely more sympathetic and empathetic than I used to be. You know, back yeah. in the early days when you were young, you'd be like, if they don't get it, they're just idiots. You know, if they don't see what I see, they're idiots. I don't think like that anymore. You know? Well, you're a business owner now, so you probably connect with CMOs in a slightly different way than your average CCO of a network agency. You guys, you guys actually share some similar uh, responsibilities and concerns. Well, I'm not thinking that it's transient where if I can just get this great thing out, then my career is fine and I'll move on to another agency. Right. You know, this has to be something that's going to work. This has to be something that's right for them, you know, because I'm going to hopefully stare at them and meet them, present to them for years, for, for years. So it can't just be a instant gratification thing and, and screw the ramifications. Does that CMO relationship come pretty naturally to you? Depends on the CMO. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not a networker, you know, and, and that's the whole – I'm not really um, a social butterfly in the industry at all, you know. I've, uh, that's not means I'm anti and all that sort of stuff. I'm not sort of a go out and press the, the flesh or woo people type of thing. I mean, I like people. I'm social and stuff like that, but, you know, I'm not a – You're too busy antagonizing your siblings. Yeah, basically. I'm yeah. plotting their downfall. <laughs> and the final question is called the one that got away. And that is, at any point in your career, there's just an idea that you could never sell it for whatever reason. It wasn't right for the time, uh, but the idea has has been seared in your soul. And if you if you could have made it, it's funny to ask. It's funny to word it if you could have made it because you actually did one of my favorite campaigns of all time. Basically called that for Newcastle, but it's the idea that never got get, that never got made or never got sold that you could never forget. It was the thing that we wanted to do um, early on. It was for G. And it was to for the Beijing Olympics, and in, we, we we convinced them, and they were actually up for it. Um, instead of doing advertising, you know, like billboards and TV, said we said put your entire budget and build a building in the center of uh, the Olympic Village, made out of all your all your technologies, that sits as a as a monument for the next fifty years. And what it would do is it's like a. a, a a proof point for the next 50 years, and it was going to purify the river that ran through Beijing through the technologies, and it was going to be, you know, solar panels and, and absorb all... So basically all the good wow. technology. And it was going to be the same price as what they did for all their generic advertising, you know, putting billboards around. Right. And, you know, I flew to China with Philippe Stark, and he was going to design it and all this sort of stuff, and Bill McDonough, who's, you know, the, the fantastic um, uh, cradle-to-grave guy. And we got really, really close and ended up the the red tape of the Beijing Olympic Authority sort of didn't let it happen. But that was one where I was like, I would have so loved to have seen that because that'd still be there now. Do you know, I ask that question and then usually there's a long lull that I edit out. I just want the listeners to know your immediate response to that was unedited. 
You didn't even have to think about it. Well, it's definitely one of those ones. I mean, there's many things that I have loved along the way. You're like, oh, if only we did that, or I wish we did that. And, the, you know, the, look, everybody has way too many of those. That's the one thing that we all have in common in the industry, Yeah. the ones that got away. But that was one that was... I just thought it would set a precedent for companies and our industries about walking the walk and... And also, what the fuck did I know about architecture and buildings? And that was also what was so exciting about it. I didn't need it. It was the idea. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know if we'd make any money on it. Everyone else would have made money. I still didn't care. I was like, this is the right thing. Yeah. But that's probably the one that's top of mind. That's a great one. Well, David Droga, you've had an incredible influence on the industry, but I can't speak to the industry, but I can speak for myself. You had an incredible influence on me and my career um, and so many of my friends and my peers, and uh, we appreciate what you do for our industry, man. Thank you. Thank you. That's very generous. Appreciate that. Trying. All right. All right. Thank you very much to the legendary David Droga. Thank you to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. Thank you to The One Club. And if you're enjoying the pod... Rate it, review it, and share it with a friend. And until next time, peace.